Welcome to My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast for your quarantine life. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and here is your other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah. How are you, Kevin? I'm okay. I had my, speaking of, of quarantines, I had my COVID uh, swab test this morning. How to, was it? Um, well, you know, about as pleasant as it sounds, but... Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've been to the pool and gotten water up your nose. That's what it feels yeah. like. Yeah. I mean, it's and then it's over and it's no big deal. And I should have the results within 48 hours. Part of uh, the university's move to get everybody back to campus. Although I don't expect to go back to the office in any serious way before August. But um, this is late May now for our listeners who will probably be hearing this in December or something, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> who even knows? Time has no meaning. <laughs> right. Hopefully this will all be irrelevant by the time our, our listeners hear this and, it'll, you know, we'll, we'll have a vaccine and everything will be a brave new world and everything will be fine. Uh, well, it'll be a, a memory of that weird time early in the that's year. That's right. The before but... times, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, today we are pleased to welcome Michael Brani. Um, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what's up? Um, hi, so I'm a historian of mathematics. Uh, I'm super excited to be on this podcast. I uh, feel like I've been listening long enough that the uh, Gainesville percussionist must be in grad school by now. Um, <laughs> no, uh, one of them is my son, and he, he just finished his third year of college. So, uh-huh. Okay, yeah, so uh, old, older <laughs> than you picture there. them anyway. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so I'm, I'm a historian of mathematics. I'm based at the University of Edinburgh, where I'm in a kind of interdisciplinary social science of science and technology department. Uh, so I get to teach students from all over the university um, how to think about what science means when you step back and look at uh, the people involved and uh, how they relate to society, uh, how ideas matter, how technologies change the world, uh, all that fun stuff that gets people to really rethink uh, their place in the world and, and the kind of things they do with their science. That's very cool. And right. I know uh, some people who you know are historians of math you get a degree through a math department and some get it through a history department, I assume. Um, and which are you and what are, I don't, I always wonder like what the benefits are of each approach. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's, I mean, it, history of mathematics is a, is a really strange field. Um, it's actually as a field, a lot older than history of science as a field and even older than history as a, as a profession. Um, so huh. history of mathematics started as a branch of mathematics um, in the early modern period. So we're mm -hmm. talking like the 1500, 1600. I mean, there's always sort of debates about how what you classify as this or that. Um, and it started as a way of trying to understand how mathematical theories came about, how they naturally fit together. The idea was that if you understood how mathematical theories emerged, you could come up with better mathematical theories and you could understand the sort of natural order of, uh, of numbers and, and the universe. And, uh, and everything else that you want to understand with mathematics. Um, and then sort of more toward the 19th and the 20th century, um, there were all these different kind of variations of history of mathematics that branched out of fields like history and philosophy and philosophy of science and history of science. Um, so my uh, undergrad training was in mathematics. My PhD is from a history department, but from a history of science program in that department. Um, but it's possible to get a PhD in history of mathematics from a mathematics department. It's possible to sort of straddle between different departments. Um, and it makes it a really sort of rich and, and interesting field. And mathematics education uh, departments sometimes or groups sometimes give PhDs in history of mathematics. And they really use the history for different purposes. So um, if your goal is to make mathematics better, you're taking the perspective of 
someone doing it from a mathematics department. If your goal is to become a better educator, then you can use history for that in a math education context. Um, I tend to do history as a way of understanding how things fit together in the past and trying to sort of make sense of, of social values and social structures and, uh, and ideologies and ideas and how those fit together. And that's the approach that, um, that you come at from a, a history or history of science uh, perspective. Very cool. cool. And, and, and how'd you end up in Edinburgh of all places? Um, well, so the academic job market means, uh, I mean, it's, it's, bad, it, sure. it's bad enough in mathematics, right? But uh, um, in, history of, in history of mathematics, there in a good year, there may be two to three openings. I mean, I'm in a mm -hmm. history of science job in general. Um, so that's the kind of cynical answer. The, um, the kind of more idealistic answer is um, Edinburgh has this really important place in the sociology of science. So in mm -hmm. the... Um, uh, in the 1970s and 80s especially, there was this group of kind of radical sociologists in, um, at the University of Edinburgh who um, set down what's called the Edinburgh School of the Sociology of Scientific Knowledge, which is known for this sort of extreme relativism, constructivism um, view of how sort of politics and ideology shape scientific knowledge. Um, and I did a master's degree in that department sort of many years later um, uh, in 2000, uh, 2009-2010. Um, sort of sort of getting my feet wet, starting to learn that discipline. Um, and that approach has been really formative for um, for me and, and my scholarship. Uh, and so it was an incredible stroke of luck that uh, they just happened to have an opening in my field uh, while I was uh, while I was on the market. Um, and and I was even even more lucky to to have the the chance to go there. Wow, that's great. I've always wanted to go. I've never been to. So Edinburgh, it looks like the most great, beautiful city in the world. Looks, yeah, looks, it looks great. So, all right, well, uh, uh, so being a historian of math, you must know a lot of theorems. Uh, so the question is, do, do you actually have a favorite one, and if so, what is it? So my favorite theorem is more of a definition, um, but I guess the theorem That's is fine. that the definition works. <laughs> okay, uh, that, great. Yeah, yeah, it works. Which, which actually, like defining, saying what it means for a definition to work is actually a really hard problem, both mm -hmm. historically and mathematically. So. Um, so it's, it's interesting in, in that regard. So the, the definition is, um, is the definition of the derivative of a distribution. Okay. Um, so distributions, um, uh, as you recall from, uh, from analysis, I guess grad analysis one is usually when you meet them. Yeah, I think it wasn't until grad school, for me at least. I don't know yeah, if I've ever met them, really. So, <laughs> I mean, that's actually so. So early, after, so distributions were invented in 1945, more or less. Um, and in the early years, uh, actually, people were saying you could teach this as a replacement for your basic calculus. So the idea was this would something would be something that even, you know, beginning college students or even high school students would be learning. Um, so it's interesting to sort of see how they, how people pitch that. Uh, the level of a theory or the the relevant audience, uh, and that's part of the story too. But uh, in, in earlier stages of one's calculus education, you learn that um, there are functions that are integrable but not continuous, continuous but not differentiable, differentiable but not continuously differentiable, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so a big problem is is how do you know something's differentiable when you're say studying a differential equation um, or you know, trying to prove some theorem about uh, that involves derivatives. And distributions were the kind of magic wand that was invented in the middle of the 20th century to say that's not actually a problem. Um, basically, if you pretend everything's differentiable, 
then all the math works out. And when it really is differentiable, you get the correct differentiable answer. And when it's not, then you get another answer that's still mathematically meaningful. Um, but it's, it's sort of your, your, your magic passphrase um, to be mm -hmm. able to ignore all of those, those problems. So uh, uh, distribution is, um, is this replacement for a function. And where functions have these sort of different degrees of differentiability, distributions are always differentiable. Um, and they always have antiderivatives, just like functions do. But every, um, every distribution can be differentiated ad, ad nauseum for whatever differential equation you want to do. And the way you do that is through this definition, my favorite definition slash theorem, uh, which is you use integration by parts. Um, so that's a technique you use in, um, uh, in calculus class um, to, as, a, as a sort of trick for resolving complicated integrals. Um, and distributions actually don't tend to look at the things that make the calculus problems challenging or interesting, depending on your, what kind of student you are uh, or what kind of teacher you are. So you set them up in a way where you don't have to worry about boundary conditions. You don't have to worry about um, what the antiderivative things are, because you're working with things where you already know what the antiderivative is. And um, the definition of uh, a distribution uses this fact from integration by parts that you essentially move the derivative from one function to another. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have like an exact way of saying functionally what the derivative of a distribution is. Um, we can still say if you um, multiply it by a function that's super smooth and uh, over a bounded domain, um, so you don't have any boundary conditions to worry about. Um, and so you always know how to differentiate that. If you multiply that by a distribution uh, and take the integral, um, then if you want to take the derivative of that distribution, integration by part says you can instead throw in a minus sign and take the derivative of that smooth function instead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so using that kind of trick of moving the derivative onto something that is always differentiable, uh, you can calculate the effect of differentiating a distribution without ever having to worry about, say, what the values of um, of that distribution are after you've taken the derivative, because distributions are often things that don't have sort of concrete values in the way that we expect functions to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I hope this question isn't very silly, but uh, you know, when we, when you think about integration by parts, if you think, you know, if you took calculus at some point and learned this, there's like the UV and then there's the minus mm -hmm. the integral of something else. And so um, for this, we just choose a function that would be zero on the boundary and that would kind of get rid of that UV term. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the definition of a distribution sets up this whole space of really nice, smooth functions. All of them eventually go to zero. Um, mm. And because you're always integrating over the entire domain and it's always sort of zero when you go far enough out into the domain, that boundary, um, those boundary terms with that UV in the beginning just completely disappear and you're just okay. left with the negative integral and then with the derivative flopped over. All right, great. So if anyone was worried about where their UV went, <laughs> that's where it went. It was zero. Don't worry, everything's okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what, what is good about this or what do you like about this? Yeah, so I think this, this is a really interesting definition from a lot of different perspectives. Um, one thing that I've been trying to understand in, in my research about uh, the history of mathematics is what it means for mathematics to become a global discipline in the 20th century. Um, so to have people around the world working on the same mathematical theory and contributing to the same research program. And this definition has really helped me understand 
what that even means and how to understand, analyze that historically. So we think, well, you know, a mathematical theory, theory or a mathematical idea is the same wherever you look at it and whoever is doing it, as long as they sort of can manipulate the definitions or sort of prove the theorem, uh, it shouldn't matter where they are. But if you look historically um, at actual mathematicians doing actual mathematics, uh, where they are makes a huge difference in terms of what methods they're comfortable with, how they understand concepts, how they explain things to each other, how they sort of make sense of new techniques. I mean, learning a new mathematics technique is actually really hard in a lot of cases. Um, and, and so the question is, how do you form enough of an understanding to be able to work with someone who you can't go and have a conversation with over tea uh, the next day to, to sort of work out your problems? Um, and the answer is basically you use things like this definition that takes something you're really comfortable with, integration by parts, and give it a new meaning. Um, and by sort of taking old meanings and reconfiguring them and relating them to other meanings, uh, you make it possible to, for everyone to have their own sorts of mathematical universes where they're building up theories, but, um, but to interact in a way where they can all sort of sensibly talk to each other and, and develop new ideas and share new ideas. Um, so that's one of the things that, that's really exciting about that, the definition um, to me. Um, one of the other things is sort of how do you know sort of what the significance of the definition is. I mean, a lot of people even early on said, isn't this just like a pun? Isn't this just wordplay? Um, uh, so, so quite, quite early on, um, uh, that was exactly when, when Schwartz was sharing this definition. Some people were getting really excited about it. Some people said, well, you know, it's a cool idea, but isn't this just, you know, isn't this just basically integration by parts? What's, what's new? What's interesting about this? And uh, the, the history really shows this, this debate almost uh, between people with different kinds of values and philosophies and goals for mathematics, for mathematics education, for the relationship between pure and applied mathematics. Uh, where they take different ideas of what's really going on with this definition. Is it something that's complex and difficult and profound um, and important in, um, uh, in that way? Or is it something that is, um, uh, is utterly sort of trivial and simple and therefore really useful to people who may be, say, electrical engineers who are trying to work with uh, the Heaviside calculus um, and need some sort of magic way to make that all add up? Um, and what made distributions and this definition really powerful is it could be these multiple things to multiple people. So you can have, um, you can have mathematicians in Poland or in Manchester or in, uh, or in Argentina um, come to these very almost diametrically opposed views of what it is that's significant or challenging or easy about distributions and they can all agree to talk to each other and um, and agree that it's worth sharing their theories and inviting them to conferences um, and reading their publications, and they can somehow all make a community out of these different understandings. Hmm. I've never thought about the sociological aspects in that way, right? Um, that's really interesting. So, so the theorem that, sh that, that basically says that this definition is a good one, yeah. is, is that a difficult theorem to prove? Is it so there are a lot of different parts. Like it's not. Yeah. I guess it. It's not. It doesn't even boil down to one. Yeah. Sure. Statement. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So there. There's the aspect that when you're dealing with a function, but dealing with it using the distributions definition, that anything you do is not going to ruin sort of what's good about it being a function. Um, so anything you do with the distribution, if if you could have done it as though it were a regular function, you get the same answer. Um, so that's one aspect of the theorem 
that sort of establishes the, this definition. Another aspect is that distributions are, in some sense, the smallest sort of class of objects that includes functions, where everything that is a normal function can be uh, indefinitely differentiated. Mm -hmm. So in, that's one way of arguing that distributions are sort of the best generalization of functions. And this sort of competition, I mean, there were a lot of different competition, uh, competing um, competing notions or competing ideas for how you can solve this problem of differentiating functions that were circulating in the 1930s and 1940s. And distributions won this sort of competing scene in part by uh, the aspects of the, of the theorems about the definition that show it's sort of the most economical, the simplest, the smallest, um, the best in that sense. Um, and then you have all the usual theorems of functional analysis, like everything converges as you expect it to. Um, if you start with something that's integrable, you're not going to sort of lose integrability in some sense. Um, so this might be a little bit of a tangent, and we can we definitely decide not to go down this path. But to make this really concrete, um, so when I think of a distribution, the example I think of, it's been a while since I've thought of distributions, actually, um, is like the Dirac delta function. Exactly. Or, you know, I, I naturally just call it a function, but yeah. it's really a distribution. And so this is a thing that I always think of it as like, it's something that you can't really define what it, what its value is, but it's like it has the convenient property that if you integrate it, you get yeah. one. Um, <laughs> you know, like its area is one, even though it's like supported on only one point and it is infinitely tall. And so zero times infinity, we want it to be one right here, um, kind and of. And magically it turns out to be one. Yeah, and it basically, if you like decide that this function, ha this distribution has this property, then things work out and it's great. Was that before or after Schwartz um, did it, like did this definition? Was like was mm -hmm. this kind of grandfathered into being a distribution, or was it kind of? Oh, the I love how you put that. <laughs> yeah. So, so this um this this phrase that you said at the beginning, uh, we call it a function, but it's really a distribution. I mean, that's evidence of Schwartz's success, right? The, um, the idea that what it really is, what it fundamentally is, is a distribution rather than a function. That, that, that's the result of this really sort of deliberate, um, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not an exaggeration to call it propaganda in the second half of the 1940s by people like Laurent Schwartz and Marston Morris and, um, and Marshall Stone um, and uh, Harold Bohr uh, and all of these sort of really um, uh, sort of far-traveling uh, advocates for the theory to say, you think you've been working with functions, you think you've been working with measures, you think you've been working with um, operator calculus, if you're an electrical engineer, for instance, um, or you think you've been working with like Bra and Ket with the, the sort of Dirac, um, Dirac calculus for, um, for quantum mechanics. But what you've really been doing ultimately deep down without even knowing it is working with distributions. And their ability to make that argument was part of their way of justifying why distributions were important. So people who had no problem just doing the math they were doing with whatever kind of language they were doing, all of a sudden these advocates for distribution theory were able to make it a problem that they were doing this without having the kind of conceptual apparatus that distributions provided them. And so they were both creating a problem for old methods and then simultaneously solving it by giving them this distribution framework. So they did this to uh, the Heaviside calculus, which is about 50 years older than distributions, they do this to the Dirac calculus, um, where the Dirac function comes from, um, which uh, comes out of the 1920s and 30s. Um, 
they did this to um, like principal value calculus, um, which which is also an interwar um, uh, interwar um, uh, concept and analysis. Um, even among Schwartz's contemporaries, there were things like um, like Durham currents, um, which were sort of had Schwartz not come along, we would all be saying the Dirac function is really a Durham current rather than uh, than Schwartz distribution. Um, but then there were even things that came after distributions that, um, or sort of simultaneously and after that, Schwartz was able to successfully claim. Like there was this whole school of functional analysis and operator theory um, coming out of Poland associated with Jan Mikuszynski, where Schwartz was, because he was able to get this international profile so much more quickly and effectively, um, he was able to say all of this like really clever research and theorems that Mikuszynski is coming up with, that's a nice example of distribution theory. Um, even though Mikuszynski would have never put that in those terms. Um, so a huge part of this history is how um, they're able to use these different views of what a distribution really is to sort of claim territory and grandfather things in and also sort of grandchild things in uh, or mm -hmm. adopt things uh, into the theory and make this thing seem much bigger than the actual kind of body of research that, um, that people who consider themselves distribution theorists themselves were doing. Okay. Um, and so I think... We also wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned in your email to us, I hope I'm getting this, I'm not getting this confused with anything, um, how this theory uh, goes with the history of the Fields Medal. Oh, exactly, yeah. So mm, this is, right. uh, this was a really surprising discovery actually in my research, so I didn't set out, I wasn't, like the Fields Medal was kind of the, like one thing, one little bit of evidence that Schwartz was a big deal. Um, I never expected in my research to come across um, some sort of evidence that really changed how, uh, how I understood what the Fields Medal historically meant. Um, and this was just a case of like stumbling into these sort of really shocking documents and then having built up all of this historical context to see them, uh, to sort of see what their historical implications were. So Schwartz was part of the second ever class of Fields Medalists in the 1950s. So the first class is in 1936, then there's World War II, um, and then uh, they sort of restart the International Congresses of Mathematics after the war, uh, and Schwartz is, is selected um, as part of that second class. The main reason he's part of that class is because of because the chair of that committee is Harold Bohr, who's the younger brother of Niels Bohr. Um, actually, in the early 1900s, Harold Bohr was the more famous Bohr um, because he oh, was a star of the, uh, the Danish Olympic soccer team. Oh. Um, wow. He's a, <laughs> yeah, a striker. Yeah. Um, his, his PhD defense had many, many, many more soccer fans than mathematicians. Um, <laughs> this, this sort of minor Danish celebrity. Um, and but he went on to be a, a quite respectable uh, mathematician. He mm. had his, math, his mathematics institute alongside his brother's physics institute in, in Copenhagen. Uh, and during the interwar period especially, he sort of established himself as this kind of safe haven for internationally minded mathematics in this period of immensely divisive uh, conflict among different national communities. Uh, and because he kind of had that role as this respected figure known for internationalism, he was selected by the Americans who organized the 1950 Congress at Harvard to chair the Fields Medal Committee. Um, and Bohr, uh, shortly before being appointed that committee had encountered uh, Schwartz in a conference that was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation that took place in, uh, in Nancy in France. Um, 
and was just totally blown away by this charming, charismatic young Frenchman with this like cool sounding new theory that seemed like it could unite pure and applied mathematicians that could be attractive to mathematicians all over the world. And so Bohr basically makes it his mission between 1947 and 1950 to tell the whole world about distributions. Uh, so he goes to um, to the U.S. and to Canada, and he writes letters all around the world. He shares it with all his friends. Um, and when he gets selected uh, to chair this committee, the, what you see him constantly doing in the committee correspondence uh, is telling all of, his, uh, uh, all of his colleagues on the committee what an exciting future of mathematics uh, Schwartz was going to be. But um, so the problem is then... then uh, so there's a question of what is the Fields Medal supposed to be for? Um, and they didn't really have a very clear definition of, of what um, of the qualifications for the medal. There was a kind of vague guidance that Fields left before he died. Um, the medal was created after, after John Charles Fields' uh, Field's death. Um, and there was a lot of ambiguity over how to interpret that. So uh, the committee basically had to decide, you know, is this an award for uh, the top mathematicians? Is this award an award for an up-and-coming mathematician? Um, how should age play a factor? Should we only do it for work that was done since the last medal was awarded? And they had a long time to consider there, so uh, that didn't really narrow it down very much in, in their case. Mm-hmm. Um, and they go through this whole debate over what kinds of values they should apply to, um, to making the selection. Um, and ultimately, uh, what I was able to see in these letters, um, which... Uh, were not saved by the International Mathematical Union, which hadn't even been formed at the time. Um, they were kind of accidentally um, set aside by a secretary in the Harvard Mathematics Department. Um, so they weren't, they weren't meant to be saved. Um, they just were in this kind of unmarked file. Um, and what those letters show is that Bohr basically constructs this idea of what the medal is supposed to be for in a strategic way to allow Schwartz to win. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this question, there's this kind of obvious pool of candidates of sort of outstanding early to mid-career mathematicians, uh, including people like Oscar Zariski and uh, Andre Vey um, and Schwartz's eventual co-medalist Atlee Selberg. Um, and they are debating the merits of all of these different candidates. And basically Bohr selects an idea of what the Fields Medal is for to be kind of prestigious enough to justify giving it to this exciting young French mathematician, but not so prestigious that he would have to give it to André Vey instead, who everyone agreed was a much better mathematician than Schwartz <laughs> and much more accomplished and much more successful and very close in age. Mm-hmm. Um, he was about five years older than Schwartz. And he never um, won the Fields Medal. And he never won the Fields Medal. Right. Um, and so what you, what you see in the letters from, uh, from the early years of the Fields Medal is actually this deliberate decision, not just by the 1950 committee, but I was also able to uh, uncover letters for the 1958 committee where they consider whether the award should be the very best young mathematicians. And they deliberately decide in both cases that it shouldn't be, that that would be a mistake, that that would be a misuse of the award. That instead, they should give it to a young mathematician, but not a young mathematician that was already so accomplished that they didn't need the leg up. Um, right. And that was my really surprising sort of discovery in the archives, um, mm-hmm. that it was never meant to sort of crown someone who was already accomplished, and in fact, being accomplished could disqualify you. Um, so Friedrich Herzebrook in 1958, everyone agreed, was the most exciting young mathematician. He was in his early 30s, um, sort of very close comparison to like someone like Peter Schultze today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so already a full professor at a very young age uh, with a widely recognized major breakthrough. Um, and... 
they considered uh, they considered Herzebrook and they said, no, no, he's too accomplished. He doesn't need this medal. Uh, we should give it to um, to Rene Tom or someone like that. Um, yeah, and of course, people like me who you know only were aware of the Fields Medal once they started grad school in math. Um, yeah, I wasn't particularly aware of anything before that. Think of it as like, oh, the very best mm -hmm. mathematicians mm -hmm. under forty, um, because it has sort of morphed into that over the intervening decades. Yeah, and one of the cool side effects is that now you can now put an asterisk next to Jean-Pierre Serre is uh, sort of mm. known to brag about being the youngest ever Fields medalist. Um, but the asterisk is that this was, he won in a period when it was still a disqualification to be too accomplished at a young age. <laughs> yeah, but he still won. Like He did you, still win, yeah. you, you, he's, still, he's still a big deal, he's still a very important you, you, you sort of couldn't deny Serre, right? I mean. Yeah, well, they, they denied Vey, right? And they they did. I think Sarah's probably still. <laughs> anyway, we can, we can argue about that. <laughs> the, the, we, we should have a ranking of best mathematicians of the 50s, right? I um, mean, yeah. yeah, because ranking mathematicians <laughs> is so possible to do because it's a well-ordered <laughs> That's set. right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I think... I obviously, like in any field of life, there's no way to like no. well order people. I, no. I shouldn't say any field. I guess you, you can know how fast people can run some number of meters under certain conditions or something. But in general, especially in creative fields, it, it's sort of impossible right. to do. Um, and so how do you choose? Right. Well, that's what I love about studying the sociology of science and technology is that you get these tools for saying, you know, even it feels like running, like we think of sprinting as this thing where everyone has a time and that's how fast they are. But look at all of the like stuff the International Olympic Committee has to do for like anti-doping and like regulating mm -hmm. what shoes you can wear. Like there are all of these different things that affect how fast you are that have to be really debated and controlled. They're kind of ultimately arbitrary. So even in cases like that, like, you know, it seems sort of more rankable than you know, mathematics or art or something, but, uh, and you can tell a great sprinter from, you know, someone like me who can barely, <laughs> can barely run a hundred meters. Um, but at the same time, like there are all of these different social and technical decisions that are so interrelated that even things like that seem super objective and incontestable, uh, end up being, uh, much more socially determined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So part two of this podcast is yeah. you have to pair your theorem with something or your definition or whatever we're going to call it. Your distribution, it, 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 yeah. Yeah, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So what if you have treat you, it as a distribution, it'll work fine. That's right. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so what have you chosen to pair with uh, with distributions? So uh, what I thought I would pair distributions with is um, uh, knock knock jokes. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I did a little bit of research um, uh, before coming on here, and, and I basically found there are no good math knock knock jokes. I mean, I hope someone, someone please prove me wrong, like tweet at me and yeah. like, tell me, tell me the best math <laughs> knock knock jokes. Are there good knock knock jokes, period? I mean, this is... Uh, yeah, there, <laughs> yeah. There, there's oh, definitely. But, but so I, I did come up with one um, that sort of at least picks up on some of the historical themes. So, so knock knock. Who's there? Who's there? Harold. Harold who? Harold who? Harold is the concept of a function anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great, but that's the best I could do. Okay. Um, so why knock-knock jokes? Um, they involve puns, so you're talking about shifting the meaning of something to come up with something new. Um, they're dialogical. They're, there's a sort of fundamental interactive element. Um, they sort of make communities. So mm -hmm. uh, sharing a knock-knock joke, getting a knock-knock joke, finding it funny or groan-inducing um, sort of tells you who your friends are and who shares your sense of humor. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and they, they sort of fundamentally use this sort of aspect of wordplay to um, uh, to make something new and to make something social, and, and that's exactly what the theory of distribution says and what that definition does um, to sort of expand your thinking. And they're also sort of seen as kind of elementary uh, or basic. Um, it's kind of like a kid's joke, uh, and the right. question of distribution says this fundamental theory or basic sort of underlying theory. Um, so I think it sort of brings together all of those aspects that I like about the definition. Wow, you thought hard about this. This is yeah, a yeah, really thoughtful, right. excellent pairing. I like this. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I like it. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is the like analogy to the, like my favorite knock-knock joke, which is the banana and orange one. The orange one, one right, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just the only classic. The use in real life. Sure. It's a great one. Yeah. Uh, you know, fantastic. But like, you know, what distribution is this? Not not joke. Uh, oh the, yeah, the, the Dirac function, right? Well, excuse uh, yeah, me, the Dirac. Aren't, aren't, you, aren't you glad <laughs> I didn't say the Dirac <laughs> distribution? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's the one you use. It's the only one you actually use all the time. So, um, right. Yeah, the the Dirac the Dirac distribution or the um, there's that sort of theorem that any partial differential equation um, can sort of be resolved as the sum of um, derivatives of, of these sort of elementary distributions. Mm -hmm. um, that's your sort of your go-to ubiquitous, uses a pun, but uses it in a way that kind of makes sense and is kind of grown inducing, but also you just love to go back and to use it over <laughs> and over and over again. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Nice. I think back in the 70s, dating myself here, I, I, I had a book of knock-knock jokes and, and it actually had the banana and orange one in it. I mean, it's like, this is how basic of a book this was. Um, so, so I, I might be writing on knock knock jokes, but of course I had a whole book of them. So, uh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, they're great. I, yep. And especially when a child tells you one. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's what they're for. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The best is when you, when you have a child who hasn't heard the like knock knock joke mm -hmm. you've heard, you've, mm -hmm. you've had like 10 million times and you get to be the person to like share the groan inducing pun with a child. I mean, right. that's like, that's how I imagine like Schwartz going to Montevideo and like explaining distribution theory, like the experience of like sharing this pun and having them go, oh, and slapping their forehead. And um, <laughs> like, there's this really sort of cultural resonance that, that to introduce something that, that you immediately grasp. And, and uh, yeah, that's a really special experience. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So at the end of the show, we like to invite our guests to plug things. And I'll actually plug a couple of your things because we've sort of mentioned them already. Um, you had a really nice article in Nature. I don't remember. It was a couple of years ago about this history of the Fields Medal, focusing on Olga Ladizhinskaya, um, who was on the shortlist in 58, was, mm -hmm. uh, and would have been the first woman to get the Fields Medal if she had gotten it. Um, but it was really interesting because it touches on these uh, things about how the Fields Medal became what it what it is thought of now and how they made that decision at that time. So go read that. Um, and you also have an article about this distribution stuff um, that I am completely now blanking on the title of, but it has the word wordplay in it. And you probably know the title. There's in integration by parts is the title. Um, okay. uh, and then there's a long subtitle that so this is the thing I, any historian does is they have like some kind of punny title mm -hmm. and then this long colon and then the right yeah exactly yeah mm -hmm. I think there's like one of the things I reasons I empathize with the theory of distributions is like this is how I think as a historian is like I come up with a pun and then I work out how all of the things connect together afterward <laughs> um, <laughs> you see that in all of all of my titles basically uh, in papers yeah um, 
No, that's on that's on my website, mbarani.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. In the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll put those in the show notes. We'll link to your website and Twitter in the show notes. Um, and yeah, anything else you want to mention? Yeah, so um, if you want all of this sort of math and sociology and politics and um, stuff about academia and um, and the values of mathematics, then my main Twitter account at Mbarani is the one to follow. If you just want um, uh, sort of parodies and irreverence, uh, irreverent observations about math history, then at Math Hist Facts oh, right. um, is my, my parody account that I started in, um, in August. But uh, the key to that is that behind everything that looks like it's just a silly joke is actually something quite subtle about historical interpretation. Um, and I, I always leave that as an exercise to the reader. Mm. Um, uh, but, but I do try to like, th- this was my kind of response to, um, so, you know, the, the St. Andrews has this, this Mac Tudor archive of, of biographies of mathematicians that has mm-hmm. you know, hundreds and hundreds of mathematicians, these sort of capsule biographies. And um, they have these little sort of examples, or they have these little um, sort of summaries, like so-and-so um, died on this date, uh, and contributed to this theory, um, and it was kind of like morbid to celebrate them for when they died. Um, but then even they, they sort of, the one that makes around every year is on, on Galileo's birthday. So Galileo is actually one of the, no, sorry, not Galileo, Galois. Um, <laughs> Galois is one of the few people who actually has an interesting death date, like whose, whose, whose death is historically significant. And, right. the, and the, uh, there's a Twitter account that like, tweets based on, um, on these little biographical snip, snippets. Um, and does it for his birthday rather than his death day, and then says like Galois made fundamental contributions to the Galois theory. So this was my like response to that account that was uh, tweeting from from these biographical snippets, saying well, there's there's more to history than than just when people died and and what theory named after them they contributed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, try to try to do something a bit more creative with that. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah, right. that is fun. I felt slightly personally attacked because I did just publish a math calendar that has a bunch of uh, <laughs> mathematicians' birthdays on it. But I did, I did choose to only do like a page about a mathematician on their birthday rather than their death day because it just seemed a lot less morbid. Very so. sensible. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there are some mathematicians with interesting death days. So, so Galois, um, Cardano, like used mathematics to predict his death day. I mean, so it's mm. speculated that he also like used some poison to make sure he got his answer right. Right. But, right. Um, Yikes. That's that's a bit rough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there there are a few mathematically interesting death days. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. mostly. Yeah, I mean, birth- birthdays are okay, I guess. I'm not, I'm not super into mathematical birthdays anyway, but yeah. Yeah. either, but uh, it's like, better than death days. I mean, when you make a calendar, you just kind of, yeah. like, got to put it on some day, and it's mm-hmm. weird to put it on not their birthday. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's a, a fun account. So, yeah, this was great. Thanks for joining yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was super, super fun. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik That's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards. And Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. 
show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. Thank you.